you have a Bible with you, sorry, I was off. The rest of you, if you have a Bible with you, can turn it to the book of 1 John. It's in the New Testament towards the end. Um, you got Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and then you got uh, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and of course, what would only make sense, 1 John, right? While you're doing that, let me uh, remind us what we're doing. So, we have been working through this, this uh, book for, uh, since January. Uh, and it was, we, we've heard over and over that it was written to a congregation that's struggling and questioning what they've been taught. And they've been struggling and questioning what they've been taught because there are people that have kind of come on the scene. Some of them have been leaders in their church who've come out from their church and are beginning to teach things contrary to what they heard. They begin to teach things like that there's, there's additional knowledge that they need besides the gospel. Something else they need to hear besides the gospel for their salvation. Um, something that only these new teachers can give them because they have the secret knowledge. They've been hearing that God doesn't care about this outdated biblical morality that the apostles seem to be pushing on them. He doesn't care about that anymore. You don't have to believe anything particular about what Jesus did, whether he was actually in the flesh, whether he was actually human, walked the earth, didn't really matter, so long as you get their teaching. That sound familiar? It should, because these aren't ancient problems, they're perpetual ones. You see, then, just like now, there are lots of people, you, you, you can go into any bookstore, do they still have those? You can go into Amazon in the religious section. And you can hear, you can read about a lot of people teaching something about Jesus. Everybody wants to hold, everybody wants Jesus on their team. But the question is, are they all equal? Or is there something we need to discern about them? That's the question that John takes up this morning. And so no matter where you are here in this room this morning, Christian or not, not everyone in here is a Christian, okay? No matter where you are this morning, this is something that we need to get. So if you have your place in uh, John, we're in, we're in uh, chapter 4. If you'd stand, that's our habit here. This is God's word to us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, I am about to preach a sermon on discerning true teaching of the gospel from false teaching of the gospel, which is a really precarious position to be in. Made more so by the fact that I do not trust myself. But I do trust you. We trust you. And so, Lord, we come asking not that you would drive my words into our hearts, that you would drive your word into our hearts, that it would be your gospel that comes through, that the finished work of Jesus would be, would be brought to the fore, that we would lift high Christ, 
and all that he has done. And let everything else, including the one who speaks, fall away. Make much of yourself this morning, Lord, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So this passage this morning is dangerous for us for a couple of reasons. I want to kind of bring those out because I think it's important for us to put all the cards on the table. All right. Uh, For the first reason that it's dangerous is that some of us in this room struggle with the notion of religious truth. That the idea that something can be true and something else can be false in terms of religious ideas uh, seems offensive, right? And so these strong words from John can make us check out because it confirms to us what we hate the most about Christianity. We hate all of these strong, objective truth claims. We don't like the, the smug sense of superiority that, that comes, comes to many uh, when Christians begin to speak about the Bible's uh, position on fill-in-the-blank, right? If that's you this morning, I would say this. You're not wrong in the reason it bugs you. Smug senses of superiority and the Christian gospel do not go together. There's no way that those two things can go together. And so if you have heard that, if that has been your experience, not just some experience that you've read about, but actually been your experience, uh, I'm grieved for you. And I hope that you can uh, just stay checked in a little bit because I think it'll, you know, I think um, you may hear something a little different. And I would encourage you to do that because I, I wouldn't want you doing the same thing you criticize others for. Uh, for others, though, it's dangerous because, let's be honest, we're in a Reformed church. And if that's new language to you, just let that gloss off you. Some of you, it's not. We're in a Reformed church. We love pointing out where other people are wrong. We've made that into a, uh, we've made that into a sport. We've given trophies for it. Those trophies involve uh, teaching on con- at conferences, generally. Uh, We take to social media to show how silly people are for their bad theology or their hypocrisy. And so we see this passage and it tends to justify our behavior. And so we are are kind of tempted to check out because this passage really only speaks to people with bad theology. Well, I would encourage you to stay with me uh, because it may speak differently than you think. All right. So we're going to look at this in three different ways this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at what it means to discern the speaker. In other words, to discern with the one who's speaking. To discern the audience. And then how to use our discernment. Okay, Discerning the speaker, discerning the audience, and then using our discernment. All right. Let's start with discerning the speaker. Because John begins with this test for truth. Look down at verses 1 and 2. He says... Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Now, stop there. Because we hear the word test the spirits, and if you're like a child of the 80s or 90s, you probably are imagining like Bill Murray's character from Ghostbusters walking in a room and playing the two highest notes on the keyboard because ghosts hate that, right? And so you're like, this is testing the spirits. What is he talking about? That, that's not it at all. Um, and we know this because he says right after that, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I don't have a, a whole lot of time to get, dig into exactly um, how he's talking about this, but basically what he means is when he's, when he's talking about testing the spirits, he's not talking about putting on a seance. All right? he's, he's talking about discerning a true teacher of Christianity from a false one. And this is important. Okay? So listen close. 
Just because someone says they're teaching something that's Christian, just because you go into a Christian church or some, uh, some church that has the word Christian on it to hear something, does not mean that thing is from God. Nor does it mean that it actually is Christian. John is saying you need to test it. And that word test um, is a word that would have been picked up from, uh, from smithing, from blacksmithing, from, from testing metals. You would throw them into a furnace to get them really hot so that you can test whether it's, an actual, whether it's actual gold or whether it's like, just looks gold. You know what I mean? Because like, maybe, maybe once it's under heat, it's, you turn, it turns out it's not real. It turns out that there's so many impurities on it, it's not gold enough to be called gold anymore. And so what he's saying is, we need to do the same kind of thing with what we hear in terms of Christianity, because maybe it's not Christian enough to be called Christian anymore. So let's continue. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. All right. So what John is telling us here, and this is important, he's telling us, here's how you're going to know. Here's how you're going to know whether or not this makes a false teacher. And so as he says that, our ears should perk up. Now, let's be clear on what it is. First and foremost, he's, he's talking about the issue of confessing. Um, for many of us, confessing is, is, a, is a word that's shrouded in, in like dark booths with screens in between them. But the word confessing simply means to agree with, uh, to declare something to be true. So it's confessing, but it's confessing and it involves Jesus Christ. And we can breeze right over that because for most of us, when we put Jesus and Christ together, uh, we either think of it as a curse or we think of the word Christ as somehow attached to Jesus' name, like his last name or some other uh, word that Mary called him. But that word is a title. And that title, the title Christ, brings with it, for anyone who's familiar with the Bible, an entire story. It's not a throwaway line. It's not a throwaway word. It's not just something that the church just learned, you know, we're just going to call Jesus this from now on. It's a title that brings with it a story. So we need to get, be reminded exactly of what John is saying. In the Old Testament, the word Christ, or Messiah, that was its Hebrew version, was a, was a title that was to be given to the one through whom God would write the world. All right? Now stick with me, because this is important. The Bible teaches that things as they are now, the world as it is now, is not as it was meant to be. That shouldn't surprise most of us. I think we get that when we watch the news or look on a website for the news, depending on what you do. But the Bible would say it this way, that we were made for a relationship with God. You and I, that's what we were made for, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, everything that is in us, to, to, uh, to be with him in a dependent relationship. But that relationship was broken through our desire for independence. And that desire came about because we bought into a lie. We were deceived into a lie. And the lie goes like this. God doesn't love you. Maybe this will sound familiar. God doesn't love you. God's not out for your good. He's just holding you back. And that you actually can do life apart from him. It'll go fine for you. So when we believed that, we betrayed him and we sought our own independence. And that is what the Bible calls sin. It is a breaking of relationship, not just a breaking of rules. It is a breaking of relationship with a person, not a force. We betrayed a person. And when we did, three things happened. First, uh, we became guilty. I know that's, that's, we don't like that. 
uh, we don't like the idea of, of being guilty before God, but, but if sin is betrayal, and not just failing to show up for curfew, then, then it actually makes sense, because we know that all betrayals bring guilt. You and I know that, because we've been betrayed, and we've done the betray. And so we became guilty before God and liable to bear the weight of that betrayal. That's what the Bible calls hell. It's the judgment of God. So we became guilty, but second, we became broken. And what that means is that now, by nature, we are independent of God. Notice I didn't say we're bad. Some of us aren't bad. We're pretty moral. But that morality isn't done out of love for God. It's not done in submission to God, and it's not done in dependence on God, and therefore it's independent. It's sin. It's, it's, it's being by nature broken. What this means for us this morning, especially in regards to this passage, is that we are not neutral towards God. The Apostle Paul calls us children of wrath. And what that means is that sin has touched every aspect of our being. Every aspect. There's nothing that's been left untouched. So we're guilty, we're broken, but lastly, we're alienated from God. And what that means, and, and my guess is, look, I've been, I've been doing ministry in this city for, for more than 10 years now, and what I've found is that this one is probably the one that most of us in the room connect with the most. Because most of us, if we're being honest, we probably don't feel guilty, right? And we don't really feel in bondage to anything, we're not feeling really broken, but man, do we feel alienated. It's why we always feel like there's a party going on and we haven't been invited that there's an inner circle that we don't belong to, even though everyone else thinks we're part of it. That alienation is from God, though. We were made for him. We were made to find our life in him. But now, we seek it everywhere and anywhere else but him. With no success. So we're guilty, we're broken, we're alienated. But God promised to fix that. He promised to deal with our guilt, to heal our brokenness, to reconcile our alienation. And he promised to do so through his Christ. So that brings us back to where we are. So when John says that a true prophet confesses Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh, he means that whole story is being brought into that. That's not just a confession that Jesus Christ had a body. That Jesus had a body, that would be a nonsensical statement. There was a dude, his name was Jesus, of course he had a body. He's talking about Jesus, who is the Christ in the flesh. Who is the answer for God's story of redemption. Who is the one who is coming to heal the world. And though it's hard to see it in English, this this also speaks to how God did deal with our sin. We are to confess Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh. I just said that. But God's answer to our deepest problem wasn't to give us rules to follow or a path to walk. It was through God himself taking on flesh in Jesus to bear our guilt on the cross, to rise again so that our brokenness might be healed, and to unite us to himself so that we might be reconciled. Now in John's day, he's saying this because these teachers that had risen up were declaring, uh, boldly, but also... uh, without a whole lot of thought as to their implications, I think, that God's answer to their sin, to our sin, wasn't anything rooted in history, but had, in fact, to do with gaining new spiritual knowledge. But John's point in this is to take it back to something that actually happened. Because the gospel is not an idea. It's a fact. It's news. And news is about something that actually happened. 
Jesus, God's Christ, come in the flesh. We have to keep pushing on this. John does over and over and over again, and we need to, because Christianity does not offer you a path. It offers you a person. Not something that you need to do, but something that has already been done, which means that what actually happened in history, in the flesh, matters. Because if it didn't, nothing else does. And that leads to a test for falsehood. Look at verse 3. He says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, that seems pretty simple, right? Almost overly so. We've gotten the whole story of Jesus, God's Christ come in the flesh. And look, anyone who doesn't say that is not from God. Uh, what he said, basically, is that the gospel is the litmus test. So clearly, if you don't confess the gospel, you're not a Christian teacher. Now, that's important because in John's day, like in ours, there were dudes standing up giving an alternative version of Christianity. Okay, We now write whole books and call them alternative Christianities, as if there were some. But John is saying that if you can't confess the gospel, you aren't from God. You aren't confessing Christianity. It may be religious. Listen, religions are proliferated across the globe. There are many of them. It may be very religious. It's just not Christian. So we can call it something else. But in our day, of course, saying that's pretty offensive, right? Maybe you're thinking that. What I just said is pretty close-minded. I mean, what you're saying, Rick, is that your version of Christianity, the version that you're talking about, that's Christianity. Every other isn't. That's, that's pretty close-minded. Well, listen, I'm not going to argue that. It actually is. But everyone does this. Even the most inclusive person in the world does this because the inclusive God of Western secularism excludes things. That God excludes any version of God that does not fit into its paradigm. So if you say that you have to do X, that you know, if, if the, the God of Western secularism meets the God of the Middle East, so, just to throw out an example, and says, no, 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 Allah is the only true God and Muhammad is a prophet, they go, oh, no, 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 come on. Now, we, we don't really hold to that. Just bring him into our system where everybody's kind of equal. And by that we mean your God has to change, morph, and shape to be ours. See, we don't think about that, do we, in Western secularism? We don't think about that because that God's our presupposition. It's our starting point. He's nice. He's really nice. Unless you cross him. And then he tears you apart until you conform to look like him. Or her. Everyone does this. And so John is saying, this is what is true and what isn't. But look, it's not just a matter of content. Let's keep reading, because he says this. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. And when I say the word Antichrist, most of us tend to think of either an evil dictator or someone whose head can spin all the way around, right? Little horns growing out. Or if, if again, if, if you were part of the church in the 90s, you're thinking of some Eastern European potentate, right? Because, of course, it's going to come from Eastern Europe or the communist bloc, uh, of something like that. Um, but if you were here a few weeks ago, when we first tackled this term, you'll remember that that word anti-Christ, that prefix anti, it can mean against. But it also means a substitute for. It means a substitute for. This is important, so listen close. 
a false teacher is not simply one who has their content wrong. A false teacher is also someone who has their intent wrong. It's not just their content, it's their intent. When someone can say, yeah, 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 I believe that Jesus uh, lived, died, rose again, yada, 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 but functionally then replaces Jesus, replaces our need for Jesus with our need for something else, whether that is, look, your main problem isn't, your deepest problem isn't, I know, I know we talk about sin, but your deepest problem is really that, um, that uh, you're disenfranchised and you need liberation. Or, look, violence has taken over and you need peace. Or you're poor and sick and you need health and wealth. Or, you don't understand that God's sovereign and you really need to accept John Calvin into your life. That, John says, is the spirit of Antichrist. That is replacing the gospel with something else. It's giving you a different Christ for a different problem. It is both intent and content that can pull us from Jesus. And that is why John commands us to keep testing. That word test is in a progressive command. He's saying, keep on testing. Keep this going because it is an ongoing process, a continual need to measure everything we hear, including from this place. Measure it by the gospel. And if that ever stops coming from this place, I need you to do two things. I need you to come correct me. And if I don't listen, I need you to go find somewhere where the gospel is being proclaimed. Okay? But that's only one end. That's the end of the someone that we're listening to, but what about the audience as a whole? Look down at verse 4 to see what makes the difference. John says, little children... You're from God. It's a great line. And, and, and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, this can be hard because the language of overcoming sounds combative. And, and in our culture, we have this, uh, we go into anaphylaxis when any, there's any kind of language about us versus them. Okay? But the them that he is speaking to is these false teachers. Remember that this congregation, this church, is already pretty messed up by these guys. And some of which because they've come from within them. Which would be startling, except that this, this letter was probably written to the church in Ephesus. And in, in the book of Acts, if you're familiar with that, Paul meets with the elders in the church of Ephesus. The guys who were leaders in the church. And he says, look, I'm never coming back here. And I know that there will be wolves, ravenous wolves that will rise up. And try and devour this church. And some of them from your own number. This should be expected. So these are really, this, these folks have messed up this congregation. There's division going on. There's a, a kind of spiritual superiority that's happening where, where you can then look down on those backwards Christians who believe in backwards morality and, and, and these silly things like Jesus coming in the flesh and rising from the dead. Everyone knows that can't happen. And so John is affirming that, look, everything's going to be fine. You've overcome them. But the thing that we need to get out of this is why. What we expect him to say is you've overcome them because you're smarter, you're more moral, you've got your theology straight, whatever. But this isn't what he says. The overcoming that happens is because you have the Spirit in you. 
that you're, you're, the fact that you have overcome them isn't because of you. It's because of God. Listen close, because this is important. The Bible proclaims something that, frankly, Christians forget all the time. That we are, by nature, no different than anyone else. And that if there is a difference in us, it is not because we got our stuff together. It is because the Spirit of God has been working in us. There is nothing wrong with me that's not wrong with you and vice versa. And there's nothing wrong with any of us that's not wrong with anyone else out there. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is not because you were smarter than your non-Christian friends or more spiritual or more savable. It is because God moved into your life, invaded your life by grace alone. By grace alone. The reason you seem to get it and others don't isn't because of you. It, is because, it isn't because you have this knack for reading the Bible. It isn't because you, you happen to be serious about spiritual things and no one else seems to be. It is because the Spirit of God invaded your heart, brought you to life, and gave you faith. The gospel from first to last is that God saves sinners. Not that God makes salvation possible. Not that God makes people savable. God saves sinners like me. And so this leaves no room for smugness. And this leaves no room for believing that anyone is too far from God. The difference wasn't your openness. It was the work of God and God alone. And if you struggle with that, I encourage you this morning to put aside your pride and give God the glory that he's due. But that leaves us to look at the question of position. Look down at verses 5 to 6. John gives us two categories. Those that are from the world and those that are from God. John constantly gives us two and only two categories. It's frustrating, but that's what it is. Now, we've already seen that what makes these categories is not us. It's not our nationality. It's not our race. It's not our gender. It's not our education level or the options of education that we've chosen for our children. Okay? It is God. And what that does is it annihilates our pride. And it levels the playing field. But we're still left with these categories. So John says this. Those in the world speak to those in the world and the world listens to them. Now, by the world, he doesn't mean the earth. That would be, again, duh. It's not the earth. When John uses the word world a lot, what he's talking about is the, the kind of the world as it is in rebellion against God. Not every person distributively, but the world as a whole in rebellion against God. Because remember, the Bible teaches that all of us, by nature, are in rebellion against God. So here's the important part. He says, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. <laughs> Do you hear that? Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. You know, Jesus said the same kind of thing. He's talking about the Pharisees. He had talks with the Pharisees, um, who were the really religious people of his day. And by talks, I mean um, raised voices and, and strong words, Okay. I know we don't think of that with Jesus, but it's all over the place. He got into arguments with these guys all the time. And in this one argument in which they're uh, going back and forth and, and previous to this had questioned his parentage and all of these different things, Jesus said, listen guys, it's not surprising y'all don't listen to me. You're not listening to me because you're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would listen to me. But you're not, so you won't. 
That simple. It's even, it's even a little of what we see in Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, as we see Jesus ascending, it's like my favorite part in all of scripture. Jesus ascending, they, they go up on the mountain. Matthew 28, uh, verse 17, it says that they head up to the mountain of olives, and this, this is a group of disciples, and it says, um, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love that. What are they doubting? Like, here are people that saw Jesus die. He died, and they all watched it. Here he is, risen from the dead, standing before him. They're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Can you do a little trick for me? Like, what, what are they doubting? Uh, it's great. Okay, now, if you checked out, I need you to check back in, because I need you to hear this clearly. What this part of the Bible is telling us, what I just talked about with Jesus talking to the Pharisees, what I just talked about with the, the, Jesus ascending and the disciples, means that. It means something we don't like to admit. Unbelief is not an issue of information. It's an issue of position. It's not an issue of information. It's an issue of position. John is saying the reason that they aren't being listened to is not a question of they don't have the right answers for people. That's not what he said. He's not saying, well, your argument for the existence of God isn't good enough, so let me, let me give you a really good argument for that, and then the world will listen to you. Or, uh, you know what? You just haven't been able to figure out a winsome enough way to communicate the Bible's morality. But once you do, the world will listen to you. It's a question of position. And that is also the reason that the message from the false teachers seems to be so easily affirmed by the larger culture. It's because of position. Listen to me. The world as a whole will never believe that the gospel is cool. It isn't. It's offensive. Because what it tells you and what it tells me is that your best efforts aren't good enough. Because you weren't made to put forth your best effort. You were made to trust alone in the Lord who made you. And so your best efforts, though glowing in the world, are not what God is looking for. You're, you're literally putting your ladder against the wrong wall. You're, you're literally uh, working hard, working tirelessly on something that is completely in the wrong direction. It's offensive. And it was meant to be. And if all of a sudden we find the world lining up with the gospel we are preaching, one of two options. Widespread revival, or we've jettisoned it. So let me summarize. John is dealing with helping us discern two things. False teachers from true teachers, and discerning... um, that by the fact that they are drawing us away from the gospel, either through content or their intent, while, while ours and others' acceptance of the gospel is not due to great arguments, but due to God's work in them. Okay? You got that? Now let's, let's, uh, let's bring this home for us specifically, shall we? First, let's look at true and false. John has said that we have a need to continually test to see if someone's teaching us from God or not. So we need to be clear on what makes true and, a true and false teacher. And I... I need to say, I should say, this is dangerous ground. Because the claim that something is false teaching is a very serious claim. Right, Paul makes it in the book of Galatians. He says, if anyone preaches a gospel other than what you've heard, even if it were me, let him be eternally damned. That's not like, look, you just don't listen to him, let him go somewhere else. Like, he says, let them be damned. It's a big deal. 
So first, we need to understand that John is pointing to central issues in the Christian faith. Uh, The way that I've often heard this put is the metaphor of a tree. Jason McCall loves this metaphor, so I'm using this for him. Uh, But if Christianity is a tree, what is central to Christianity, what makes Christianity Christian, is part of the trunk. And there are other things that are part of the branches that aren't as central. Okay, And so... um, what is central to Christianity? Part of the trunk would be things like the truths that we confess in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, right? Those kind of central uh, facts. Uh, and, uh, and also that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's the trunk. Now, the branches. The branches include lots of things, like um, our views on baptism, spiritual gifts, the role of God in salvation, things like that. Like It has lots of different church government, views on worship. There's plenty of room for disagreement over branch issues, but not the trunk. If you're dealing with a different trunk, you're dealing with a different tree. If you're dealing with a different trunk, you're dealing with a different tree. So let me be clear. If someone teaches you that God is not Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is just Jehovah, that Jesus is just a creature, a great creature, better than us, but not eternally God. Or that Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead. Or that you have to add your obedience to the work of Jesus to save you. Those are trunk issues. And let me say this, it does not matter if we agree with them on issues on the branches. If the trunk is different, the tree is different. They are false teachers. In the same way, if someone teaches that the gospel needs to be replaced, like I said, if someone teaches that your problem isn't really your, your, the sin that has broken your relationship with God, it's really, you know, it's just that, well, the world is broken because wealth distribution is off. And, and so what we need to do is we need to kind of understand liberation liberates us from our socioeconomic class into something else. Or if it's the real problem is that there's just, that Jesus didn't die as a substitute for our sin. He died to say no to violence. Or if, like I said, if we, if we come to this and we say, look, the real issue, your real need is to understand that God is sovereign over everything. And yeah, yeah, Jesus, but we're going to get to the true meat. Let me introduce you to Tulip. That is false teaching. I am a pastor in a PCA church. I am as reformed as anyone I know. If you do not agree with our theology on those issues, to me, I do not care. But you must know Jesus. You must. My passion for you is that you receive Jesus, not John Calvin. If I can convince you of the other, awesome. But it's not as big a deal to me, okay? There is no substitution for the Christ. There is no substitution for Jesus. You either have faith in his substitutionary life and his substitutionary death and resurrection for you, or you are still in your sins. It is not about doing something for him. It's about trusting in what he has already accomplished for you. Lastly, though, I want to talk about the root of unbelief. And this is really important for us to get, whether you're a Christian or not. Because all of us, again, Christian or not, love to believe that we are neutral. We love it. That we're like this blank slate. That information comes in, we weigh it, we decide if it's plausible or not. 
And so then we tend to think that the reason we don't believe the gospel, or the reason that our friends don't believe the gospel, is is because we don't have our questions answered. But this passage is consistent with with the entire Bible. You and I, by nature, are not neutral. We are in rebellion. again. We hate God. Apart from the work of the Spirit, you and I hate God. You're like, no, 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 Rick, look, I'm not a Christian. I, God's okay. Not the God of the Bible. Some, the, the God of Western secularism may be great with you, because he's great with everybody, except those who are exclusive. But, but the point is, is that you, the God of the Bible, no, no, no. The God who offends us, offends our pride, but loves us unconditionally. We, we, we're not sure about that. You see, the problem with the gospel is that if it is true, everything must change. And we know that. We know that. You know that the gospel doesn't just call us to believe something. It calls us to give up our independence and place our faith in Jesus. It calls us to offer up our lives to him, to place ourselves under his lordship instead of of ours. It calls us to give up on the illusion that you and I can decide what is right and wrong. What will flourish us? What will satisfy us? And to lay all of that in his hands. If that is going to happen, it's not going to be because we got the best answer to how Christianity and science relate. Okay? It's going to be because the Spirit has worked in us to give up our rebellion. Now listen close. That is not to denigrate our questions. I'm not scared of questions. I have them. God is not scared of questions. Bring your questions. What it is to say. What it is to say is that it is Jesus that saves, not information. What saved you was not that someone answered all your questions or that you got your stuff straight. It was Jesus. It was always and entirely Jesus. I still remember some of you will remember this too. I still remember the day when it was all bunk and the next day it wasn't. And it wasn't because I had some brilliant dude giving me great, great answers to my questions. It's because all of a sudden it wasn't bunk anymore. And if that can happen for me, if it happened for you, it can happen for anyone. Our unbelief comes from our rebellion, from our sin. And so the only solution to that is the powerful work of Jesus being unleashed in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, over this, over this time, we just ask your blessing. There's been a lot that I've said today that has been offensive. And for uh, my friends here who don't believe, I pray that you would use that offense for what you always intended the offense of the gospel to do, to drive us back to you. For the rest of us who are struggling with other things that I said, I, I pray, Lord, that you would... Not let this group of people, not let this congregation, not let Holy Cross ever take my word for it. But they would return again to the scriptures, to the gospel, and and see, does it line up? And where it does, Lord, I pray that you would use it to build us up. And where it doesn't, would you let it fall away quickly? We trust in you and in you alone. Give us eyes and ears and minds that can discern between what is true and what is not based on what lifts you up and makes much of Jesus, and what simply uses Jesus as a means to another end. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.